The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us today through your word. We thank you, Father, that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Give us hope this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you please take your seat? Uh, That prayer is a verse from Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 where Paul writes, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. As we come to 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning, beginning of verse 41, it'd be great if you had your Bibles there in front of you, and it would be great if you remembered that that was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, you might have hope. Uh, One of the wonderful blessings and privileges of living uh, in North Carolina and close to the coast uh, is the beach, the ocean, and the access to boats. It's not something that I've had the privilege of enjoying uh, in my lifetime, but of late, I've had a lot of it. And one of the things that I've discovered uh, is anchoring a boat. Uh, sometimes I've discovered that you even have to get really creative in anchoring a boat. It's not just about throwing the anchor in the front, you've got to also throw one in the back. In fact, last Sunday uh, I discovered a real uh, motley crew of folk who kind of did this really crazy three-boat anchoring in three different ways and three different anchors and a peg in the ground on the beach and it was nuts. And not by the book, but it worked. And I share that with you because our passage this morning is really a passage that is held in tension. Uh, It is a passage that is anchored both in the past and in the future. Uh, We come back this morning to Mount Carmel, uh, the same mount that we were on last Sunday morning where God sent fire from heaven. Not only are we still on that mountain, we're still on the same day. Last week we discovered uh, that hope is on the horizon, that God is faithful even in Elijah's life, and that God really is there. If last week we discovered that God really is there, I think that this week we focus and hone in on the God who answers. 
One of the conclusions that I hope that you've drawn from our series in Elijah is that prayer really is powerful. Prayer really does work. But we also have to be careful with something that is so powerful because we can easily misunderstand it. Prayer is only powerful because the God who really is there is powerful. And the God who is powerful is the one who answers these prayers. We discovered last week that prayer to Baal was not powerful. There was no one who answered. There was no one who was paying attention. There was no one who was listening. How different it was when Elijah prayed and called on the name of the Lord and the Lord sent fire so that the people on that day could see with absolute clarity that the Lord, he is God, that they could declare that with their own lips. So the God who really is there really does answer because that is who he is. But one of the common misunderstandings that we can make when it comes to the power of prayer is that we can begin to think uh, that prayer is a way that we can prevail over God's will. Uh, The perfect prayer, the real prayer is uh, not my will be done, which sometimes we can devolve into praying something to that effect, not what I want, uh, not making the things in my life happen. Uh, the, the, The perfect prayer is not my will, but your will be done. Uh, The perfect prayer is not as I will, but as you will. You might remember who actually prayed those words, our Savior, Jesus. Uh, The Bible contains remarkable promises to those who pray that the God who really is there graciously invites us to bring him whatever is on our hearts so that we can cast all our anxieties on him knowing that he does care for us. And it's a wonderful relief to know that we can pray trusting the God to whom we pray Because if we're honest with ourselves, we often don't understand our own deepest needs. If we're really honest with ourselves, we often don't know what we should pray. And as we pray, we trust the wisdom and the goodness of God to do immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. And as we learn to pray the promises of God, we discover that those promises are incredibly precious Because it's from the promises of God's word that we learn God's good and wise will. And we learn to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so prayer is powerful, but what we need to understand is that it is as powerful as the promises of God on which the prayers are based in the first place. And so we come to that day on Mount Carmel, the end of that day, when those who called on the name of Baal found no answer. But when Elijah called on the name of the Lord, he answered with fire. And at the end of that day, Elijah prayed again in our passage that hopefully you have in front of you. This prayer was powerful, and we're about to see that again, the Lord did immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. But before we see what happened, we need to throw our first anchor out into the water to get a little bit of tension. We need to glance back to 1 Kings chapter 17, where this story began. 
Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Three years goes by between the beginning of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18 where we read, after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. That's what led to the drama that unfolded on that day. But it's interesting because so far in chapter 18 the drought hasn't been mentioned at all. And it's because there was something much more important. There was a need that was so much more desperate, so much more vital than even rain for the ground and rain for the crops and rain for the food and the livestock and rain for life. There was something much more important that needed to be sorted out that day. Who really is God? No doubt some would have questioned on that day the Lord's answer when he sent down fire from heaven. They might have said, well, we didn't really need fire. And all that precious water that you poured over the sacrifice and into the trenches that got burned up, Lord, why didn't you send rain? Reveal yourself with rain, not fire. Is this really who you are? And after the slopes of the mountain were still dusty and dry as ever. But there's one more thing that we need to understand before we see what happens next in these last five verses. And just so you know, this is not a Hollywood happy ending. All right? That's not what's going on in these five verses. It's something more than that. And so we need to throw out our second anchor to get tension for this boat. We need to see what happened nearly 100 years before in 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon became king. We won't read all of it, just two verses. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon prayed a prayer. He prayed a prayer about a whole bunch of things, but the one thing that we want to hone in on is the part of his prayer concerning the unfaithfulness of Israel to the covenants and their idolatry and worship of other gods. If you're taking notes, it's 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 35. And this is what Solomon prays 100 years before this day. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. The drought was because the king and the people had sinned against the Lord. They had prostituted themselves before other gods. Uh, their sin against this God who had given them everything, this God really, who is really there, was their turning their backs on him. But now, if they turned from their sin and called upon the name of the Lord, he would hear from heaven and send rain, but more than that, forgive their sin. Well, when all the people come to their senses on Mount Carmel and fall down and cry out that the Lord, he is God, that first step has been taken, that first act of repentance, that first act of the Lord turning their hearts back to himself. And so we come to chapter 18 and verse 41, and here's what happened next. Elijah says to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, 
and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Ahab was there the whole time. We haven't heard about Ahab since verse 20 of chapter 18, but he was there the whole time. And I take it then that he was among the people, not only who saw the fire, but whose hearts were turned back to the Lord. That he joined in with the people and cried out, the Lord, he is God. At the very least, he was witness to the events of that day and the people's hearts being turned back to the Lord. And the king, like the people, I think had a change of hearts. And even his call, this call of Elijah to eat and drink is actually an invitation to celebrate. But what is it he's celebrating? God revealed himself, there's still no rain. What's the celebration? Well, the celebration is bound up in the act of the eating and the drinking. So back when God makes his covenant with Israel at Sinai, uh, Moses holds a feast and they ate and drank around the covenant. When Jesus enacts the new covenant, the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate later today, it was around a meal. In other words, what is being alluded to here when Elijah says to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, is a covenant renewal, a return to the Lord. And Elijah tells him to do this because, look at, verse 40, at the end of verse 41, he could hear the sound of the rushing of rain. He could hear it, he couldn't see it. Still no clouds in the sky. He could hear it because of the promises of chapter 17 and 18, and likely the promise of Solomon in chapter eight. God said no rain. God said chapter 18 there would be rain. God promised in Solomon's prayer that he would give rain. And this promise was his confidence, and he invites Ahab to share in that promise and the confidence that Elijah has in it. Now certainly Ahab's story is far from over. We'll discover that next week. You gotta come back and hear about that. But here we see an incredible change in this most wicked king. The Lord whom he had turned his back on now turns the hearts of the people and the king to himself. And the next thing that happens in verse 42 is Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel where he bows himself down on the earth and puts his face between his knees. Now the passage never says that Elijah prays, but I'm pretty sure that getting into that position, which I did try to at home and I couldn't do it myself, don't try it at home, especially if you have hip or back problems. This position that he puts himself into is this posture of prayer. And it's in this uh, quiet posture, this posture of humility that our minds are drawn to the intense concentration of his prayers. And our minds, no doubt, are very quick to make the connection, well, he was praying for rain, right? That's what's needed. That's where the story's going. But I think that we're missing something if we don't recognize that this is not a Hollywood story with a happy ending, that there's more to it. I want to suggest that Elijah was praying for more than just water. Remember King Solomon's prayer, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Just a note on prophets. Uh, the, the prophets uh, were people that God raised up to speak God's word to his people. We ought to think of them a little bit less as those who told about events that would take place in the future and rather think about them as reformers 
enforcing God's law, calling people to return to covenant faithfulness from which they shouldn't have departed in the first place. But along with their preaching to the nation, also went prayer for the nation. Not only were their covenant enforcers, they were also covenant intercessors. They talked to God about the people just as earnestly as they talked to the people about God. And if we need to throw out a fourth rope to get tension, a third rope to get tension, we need to cast our minds back to Deuteronomy where we read in chapter 18, the Lord speaking, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, talking about Moses, I will raise up a prophet for them like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It's very likely that this is pointing forward not only to Jesus but also to Elijah. So back to the story. Hear your people and send rain. If it rained, what would it mean? If it rained, it would mean that the Lord had forgiven the people's sins. You can see rain, can't you? This week wasn't so bad, but remember last week? Remember the rain that we had last? You can see the rain. You can see it when it falls. You can see it on the ground. You can see it in the creeks. You can see it on your car. You, 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 when it's raining in Raleigh, you know that it is raining. But can you see forgiveness? I mean, maybe a little bit. Maybe you can see a little bit of forgiveness relationally. Can, can you see the forgiveness of your sins? as God pronounces you not guilty? Uh, Jesus was put to this question in Mark chapter two when the paralyzed man was brought to him and he says to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and take your mat and walk? We don't know the words that Elijah prayed, only his posture, which hints at the intensity and the gravity of the moment. What will the God who is there do now? This is the suspense that is building up. And Elijah says to his servant, verse 43, go up now, look toward the sea. In other words, climb to the top of the mountain. What do you see? And he goes up and he looks and says, there's nothing. And Elijah says, go again, go again, go again, go again, go again. I mean, you, can you just imagine the exhaustion of this young man? He must have been an Olympic athlete. Climbing to the top, racing back down. Climbing to the top, racing back down. I can only imagine that he got a little bit frustrated, although we know nothing about what he was thinking, but he did it. And at the seventh time, verse 44, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. A little cloud, no bigger than being able to cover it with your hands, is rising up out of the sea. And Elijah says, go up and tell Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. There's nothing there, the servant says, six times over. And yet Elijah continued to pray. Like the widow, he prayed and did not give up or lose heart, the widow from our gospel reading. And I do think that there is something in there for us by way of application in terms of the way that God hears and answers prayers. The first half of chapter 18, Elijah prays once and there's instantaneous fire from heaven. Here he prays over and over and over and over. And only then does God answer. And only then with just a little cloud and a little hope. 
Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners so that they can be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. He says also, don't be like the Gentiles who pray with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of words. For they think that they'll be heard because they use so many words. Don't be like them. For your Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask. Think of the prophets of Baal who danced and pranced and cut and shouted and wailed. Elijah prayed quietly and earnestly and intensely and with focus to the God who had given his word, to the God who really is there, to the God who is powerful. Here then is the concentrated, persistent prayer of Elijah the prophet. One commentator says of him, this is what is profitable prayer. But don't miss the immense significance of what it is that he's praying for. If the rain came down, it means sin would be forgiven. Jesus spoke once of a cloud rising in the west. He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And then he says, you hypocrites, you, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky and the clouds and the wind, but you do not know how to interpret what is going on right in front of you in this present time. And so it is that after three years of cloudless skies, God is about to fulfill his word of promise. And Elijah says to Ahab, go get your chariot, ride back to Jezreel, because if you don't do it now, you're never going to make it. We don't know who else might have been thinking of this rain like this, the forgiveness of sin. The story is told in such a way that we could very easily miss the deeper meaning of what's taking place. And the author's probably quite deliberate because we don't have to go much further, just a couple of verses, to discover uh, that Israel's repentance was incredibly short-lived, that their return to the covenant, uh, the grace that was offered to them was not something that was embraced by the nation. But we must not forget that this story in and of itself, the story of the burnt offering still sizzling on top of the mountain is the story of atonement and forgiveness and grace received. There the people called on the name of the Lord and the Lord heard from heaven and the Lord answered not only with fire but with rain, the sign of the forgiveness of their sins. Don't miss out on this mighty and unforgettable moment this thing that we are witnessing here. Ahab gets in his chariot and he races down to Jezreel and we've got this really interesting little piece where Elijah uh, hikes up his robes and makes a run for it and he actually gets to Jezreel before Ahab does. Whether it was supernatural or because the chariot got stuck in the mud, there's a little bit of uncertainty but that's not the point that we're supposed to see again there. Again, we're meant to see what's in the details, and the details are this. Upon his return to Jezreel, the king was trailing the prophets. Upon his return to Jezreel, the one who was meant to rule the people of God was trailing the one who carried the word of God. That's what we see happening at the end of the story. This great reversal 
where things were once again set right, where before Ahab was at odds with Elijah and trying to kill him, now he is following him and Elijah acts as the herald of the story as he runs into this place of power. And although this is not the end of the story, this is where we're gonna end today. You'll have to listen again next week to find out what Jezebel decides to do to Elijah. But I wanna make a couple of points about prayer as we close off our time. And I wanna throw off one more line into the ocean. Here's our fourth anchor to hold this story of Elijah in tension. James, in the New Testament, remembers this story. He actually quotes it. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah was a human just like us. He prayed and he prayed again. I want us to see what was behind the power of Elijah's prayer. What was behind it was the God who was powerful, who was able to answer that prayer. And I'm not gonna send you out this afternoon and ask you to pray for rain and then to pray for not rain. I don't think that's what the point that James is making here in this little section. I think that James understands rightly the story of Elijah within its context. You don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to go read James chapter five at lunch this afternoon. But you'll notice that this quote about Elijah is set within the context of the forgiveness of sin. In verse 15, we read that if they have sinned, they will be forgiven in James chapter five. Then in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And then again in verse 19, just after the story of Elijah that James quotes, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think it's safe to say that James understood that the really powerful thing that was going on that day was not what was seen in the rain, but what was unseen, the forgiveness of sins. This side of the atoning sacrifice of the cross, this side of the resurrection that far surpasses the fire that fell from heaven on Mount Carmel, teaches us that our prayers can be powerful just like Elijah's prayer was powerful because we, like him, can see sins forgiven. That was what the rain pouring down over the land meant. That is what the resurrection means, sins forgiven. There is nothing more powerful in all the world than to have our sins forgiven and to be brought back into relationship with God. That there is a prayer that is so powerful that the God who is there really does answer with the forgiveness of your sins and my sins and whoever will call upon the name of the Lord's sins. And so at the heart of the Christian believer's experience of the God who really is there are our sins forgiven. And what I need you to hear this morning is that your sins forgiven 
my sins forgiven is spectacular. I need you to feel and know that it is more spectacular than fire falling from heaven. Even more spectacular than resurrection from the dead. I believe it's July 4th this week. I believe many of you will walk fireworks. You will see fire falling from heaven. You will be reminded of the freedom that was won for you at great cost and great price. But I wonder if you will remember and take to heart not your freedom, but your forgiveness. Not when fire fell from heaven, but when God's Son was crucified and died for you. When he was raised from death for you. That that is the most spectacular thing in all the world. And that that is the most desperate need of our confused and muddled and troubled world today. We could all make a long list of things that our world needed. But at the top of that list, to know the God who really is there and to experience the forgiveness of our sins, that would have to be at the top. And so today, if that is your experience, I would encourage you to spend some time reflecting on the wonder of it. Sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, and because of that, death defeated and life without end. And if you've not experienced that, if you don't know that your sins can be forgiven, I hope that you leave here knowing today that they could be. That that offer is available to everyone. That the God who really is there will hear your prayer today if you call out to him because he has atoned for your sins in the death of Jesus. Romans chapter 10 tells us that if we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so friends, I hope that today that is your prayer. That is either your prayer of thanksgiving for what God has done for you, or it is your prayer that you pray from the depths of your heart, inviting him to forgive those sins, to cleanse your conscience, and to restore your relationship with him. That's what happened on Mount Carmel. God declared through the rain, my relationship with you, my chosen people is restored. And that's what he does through the cross and resurrection. And so that is your invitation today, to call in the name of the Lord, to receive that salvation. Would you bow with me and let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you not only hear our prayers, but you answer them. We thank you, Lord, that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful. We thank you, Lord, for Elijah and all that we can learn from him. But more than that, Lord, we thank you for what we learn about you this morning, that you are the God who desires to forgive and restore and bring us back into relationship with you and you have done all of those things for us already. And so, Father, soften our hearts, open our minds, Draw us to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.